0: show, Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is yet another segment of Christogene Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 21st, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight's program is subtitled 1 Corinthians Part 8 marriage and divorce. Last week it was marriage and fornication. This week we're going to get more of the same thing because last week we had more to discuss and and, and um on, on on so few verses that we just can't get through Paul's Dissertation here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Quickly, we will finish 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tonight, I pray, and um, address the matters here sufficiently because they are important. Because the words that we use and and our concepts of their definitions
1: create for us a Weltanschauung, a worldview. Christians should
0: conform their worldview to Christ. And in order to do that, we have to understand terms in much the same way that he understood them. Two people can be um, using the same words and saying two different things because their concept of the meanings of words vary from person to person, even when they're speaking the same language. So they may be in disagreement about something, and, and, and really, it, if they both define the terms the same way, they would find that they're, they're, they're really agreeing. And people may think that they agree on some things, yet because they that they envision the definitions of certain words differently, they're really in disagreement. And and I've had that personal experience many times, that the um, what we can use terms and think that others understand them the way we do. And if that's not the case, we're basically headed down a hill off a cliff with our relationship with that person, but because when you think that you agree with somebody for so long and all of a sudden you realize you don't, and I've had this experience directly in, in my Christian identity ministry, you, think, you suddenly realize that you don't agree with that person because his concept of certain terms is simply different from your concept. Well well we could have an explosion, a collision, be on a collision course with one another because conflict is inevitable unless we define our terms and and agree to them to the definitions up front. While Paul of Tarsus discusses several things which open up for us other avenues of interest which merit attention. Here in our presentation of 1 Corinthians chapters 6 and 7, we have made it a point to illustrate what we believe are the biblically Christian definitions of marriage, fornication, and adultery. Doing this, we hope to have established that the term fornication describes race mixing as well as prostitution and other forms of illicit sexual activity, such as sodomy. And there were some classical Greeks that used the term in that manner. We also hope to have established that adultery is the violation of the marriage of another. However, for an
1: Israelite. Adultery is also the violation of the marriage covenant which Yahweh God has with the children of Israel.
0: And therefore, race mixing is certainly to be considered as adultery in that context, as it is so frequently found in the words of the holy prophets. One example of that is in... Numbers chapter 36, where it says, So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. That's a commandment of Yahweh God in the law. So when you, being an Israelite, are part of the bride of Yahweh, By violating that term of that covenant, you are committing adultery against your husband. These definitions for fornication and adultery may be contested by the water carriers for the denominational sects, but they have been established from Scripture and they certainly should not cause controversy within Christian identity circles. However, what we have established from Scripture is marriage broaches a topic which can be controversial even within Christian identity circles. And we perceive that is mostly because of the attachment which even the finest men and women have for the societal constructs to which they are accustomed. They think that something should be a certain way. They have good reasons why it should be that way. They want to defend what they consider right. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There are many Christians who would insist that marriage happens at an altar. The only marriages which happened at altars in the ancient world were those which had occurred in the temples of Baal and they were very likely instances of fornication rather than marriage. Likewise, there were Christians who would insist that marriage happens upon an exchange of vows before witnesses. However, while that may be one way to express one's commitment to a marriage, it is not the marriage itself as we shall see here in the second part of our presentation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when we encounter verse 36. The patriarch Isaac saw the the woman which the servant of his father had procured for him, and never, having made any public display or ceremony, he took her to his tent where she became his wife. The patriarch Jacob worked seven years so that he could marry Rachel. The contract and the promises involved for the hand of Rachel were not made with the maiden. They were made with her father. That is because in the world of the Bible, women were the property of their fathers or of any surviving brothers or uncles until they were handed over to a man for marriage. Jacob met the requirements laid upon him in exchange for the hand of Rachel, and a wedding feast was celebrated. However, Rachel's father, Laban was dishonest, and that night, when it came time to bring the maiden to the bridal chamber, he substituted the older sister, Leah. The contract Jacob made with Laban was for Rachel. The seven years which Jacob worked was for Rachel. The marriage feast to celebrate the marriage was for the intent that Jacob would marry Rachel. But on the next morning, Jacob realized that he was married to Leah rather than to Rachel. Why? Well, because the marriage feast is not the marriage, and the contract is not the marriage, in reality, the act of sexual union is the marriage. It is the factual reality which matters before God and not the societal constructs which man adds to the factual reality. Jacob realized this, and he kept Leah as his wife agreeing to work yet another seven years for the hope of obtaining Rachel as well because he really loved Rachel. There are other ways in Scripture in which marriage occurred. David took Bathsheba in sin and when Uriah, her husband, was killed, David was relieved of the penalty for adulterers even if he suffered punishment in other ways. But while David was admittedly wrong in the way that he obtained Bathsheba, at the end of the day, she was still his wife, and there were no recorded vows or ceremonies or any other such thing. It was the factual reality of the matter which made Bathsheba the wife of David, as the scripture labels her in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We see in the law that it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 22, that if a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, meaning she's not promised to another man, she's not bound up in a contractual obligation where she is the property of another man, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and may be found. Then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He may not put her away, all his days now while that may be a poor way to find a wife it is evident that there are many ways to get married however marriage is indeed the act of sexual union which is the factual reality the only actually Biblical prerequisite for a proper marriage is what we see in Scripture, that the woman be of the same flesh and bone as her husband. Societal constructs are erected by men for various reasons. Many of them are good reasons. It is noble to ensure that a young man bidding a maiden's hand have good intentions and that he is seriously concerned for her interests and that they are committed to one another, etc. But all of the constructs which society imposes cannot ensure the success or duration of a marriage, which is something
1: that only Yahweh God can do the man who seduces or rapes a
0: virgin and agrees to pay the price, that man is no less married than the man who works seven years to prove his commitment to the father of his prospective wife. They're both equally married to their prospective women. Even if the rapist is a cad, and he certainly is. In the end, it does not really matter if the marriage occurs in a cathedral or in a hayfield. The marriage in the hayfield is just as much a marriage as the marriage in the cathedral. What matters is that the man and woman keep the law of Yahweh their God, and by itself, no vow no altar, and no certificate has ever kept a man from apostasy. Never. Only the grace of God and the desire of man to fashion himself after Christ can possibly keep a man from apostasy. In respect to judgment, for criminal matters. It is said in the law that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Men have since found that same principle which was originally instituted for matters of condemnation under the law. Men have found that same principle to be useful in other areas of life as well. And therefore, it has been employed as part of the modern marriage tradition. However, we must understand that our modern perception of marriage is just that. It's a tradition, and it is not necessarily the law of God. For the first 18 centuries of the Christian era, When wedding feasts were celebrated, they were celebrated at home, usually in a home of the bride. And the various traditions related to marriage varied from family to family and region to region. In Ireland, they jump over a broomstick, right? I've read that. I've never been there. But the celebration should not ever be confused with officiation. That's where we get tripped up. We may assert that any man who pretends to officiate over another man's marriage pretends to be God and is no different from a pope. It is fair, however, for a man to be appointed to officiate over the celebration of a marriage. The distinction is not a minor one, not by any means. I would invite a man to officiate over the celebration of my marriage, but he sure as hell cannot marry me. Only I can do that, and only
1: Yahweh God can uphold it. when marriages were celebrated at home, or even if they were not celebrated
0: at all, because not everybody in the Middle Ages had the luxury of celebrating a marriage. For many centuries in the Middle Ages, and until recent times, all a couple did was stand outside of their church on a Sunday, and this is back in the days when everybody had to go to church. It was compulsory. They stood outside of their church on a Sunday and announced to their fellow parishioners that they were married. In that manner, they didn't only have two or three witnesses, but the whole community became witnesses to their wedding and would consider the couple as man and wife. Witness. There are some rather common words which appear in this chapter which are often poorly perceived and their meaning should be discussed. This is because there are men who would make doctrines from the perceived meanings of English words while the actual meanings of the original Greek or Hebrew terms do not necessarily uphold
1: such doctrines. A parthenous. You hear it today. Oh, Mary wasn't really a
0: virgin. She was just a young lady. That word means young lady. It refers to a maiden. Wink, wink. Bull. A is a virgin. A maiden was an unmarried woman who was called a Parthenous because she was expected to be a virgin. In a moral society, a woman who was not yet married would of course be a virgin. There are several other ways to say girl or young woman in Greek without the implication of virginity. Words such as kore or talis Here in this chapter, Paul uses the word parthenos four times. And without a doubt, he is referring to a young woman who is a virgin, who had not yet had any sexual relationship at all. The word gune is a wife, very popularly in the King James Version, but In Greek, a gune is also a woman because there's really no distinction between a woman and a wife. That's an English distinction. The word gune appears 19 times in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where the King James Version translated it as wife or wives. It appears one more time in verse 13, where the King James Version translated the word as woman. There was no specific word in Greek or Hebrew for wife. Liddell and Scott define the term gune as woman when the word is opposed to man. But they define it as wife when the word is opposed to virgin, parthenos, or man in the marital sense, which is often translated husband,
1: which we will get to shortly. In the ancient Greek world, a woman was a
0: maiden or a virgin, a parthenos, until She had a consummated sexual union, which was a marriage. Even if she was espoused or betrothed to a man, like Mary was betrothed to Joseph, she was promised in marriage to Joseph, and Joseph simply hadn't consummated the union yet, which makes the marriage even when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, she was still considered a parthenus, a maiden, because parthenus, or virgin, represented the factual reality, and not the contract or the certificate. She wouldn't be a gune until the marriage was complete, meaning until it was consummated. So, Gune is a woman, literally in Greek, but in many contexts it can be translated as wife and should be when it's opposed to the male counterpart of a marriage relationship which is being discussed and then a word meaning male or man is translated as husband. This verb, mene Strong's number thirty-four twenty-three. It's usually rendered as promised in marriage in the Christian New Testament. It's usually rendered as espoused in the King James Version. To me, espoused means to have a spouse. It means to be a wife or a gune. And that's why I didn't use espoused. Because Mene Stuomahi means promised in marriage and does not indicate by any means that the marriage is consummated, that it's a marriage at all. The word appears in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapters 1 and 2 in relation to the Virgin Mary who was espoused but not married to Joseph, the stepfather of Christ. Now, the word does not appear here, but the condition does, where later in a chapter we see in 736 that a man may possess a virgin to whom he is not yet married, and therefore this word is expedient to note. There is another Greek word, aner. On air, Strong's number 435, which may signify a grown man as compared with a boy, just like Gune signifies a woman who has had a consummated sexual union in marriage as, a pair, as compared to a Parthenos or a virgin. So aner can signify simply a man as compared to a boy, or it can signify a male as compared to a female. And we would translate the words aner and gune like that in certain contexts. However, in contexts such as here in 1 Corinthians 7, where women and marriage are being discussed, it can and should be interpreted as a husband as opposed to a wife. Like gune, while there is no specific Greek word meaning husband, aner can be translated as husband in the context of a marriage relationship. The Greek verb ganeo means to marry. According to the ninth edition of the Liddell & Scott Greek-English Lexicon, which I will scan this page and post it on my website with this podcast, but not until next week when I have my printer hooked up. I'm sorry, I don't have my scanner hooked up yet. I would have had it for this program. According to the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, which always supplies copious citations, the Greek verb gamea was used both of mere sexual intercourse, which is the act of getting married, as well as the more formal and intricate marriage arrangements That people are want to make, where the marriage can be considered the entire process, the contract, the feast, and the sexual consummation, and that's fine. But gamel was also used to merely refer to the act of sexual intercourse, which was, in essence, the marriage. Because, as we see from the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel in the Bible, the contract is not the marriage. The working seven years, the agreement is not the marriage. Jacob was married to Leah. Leah was Jacob's wife because they had a sexual union
1: and Jacob did the right thing and honored it. The Greek word gamos is the noun counterpart
0: to ganeo. It described the act of marrying, and it also described the act of sexual intercourse, as well as being used to describe the marriage feast. And there were other words originally in ancient Greek, such as gamalia, which were particularly used to describe the marriage feast. But over time, throughout the Hellenistic period, just like we've seen in English, marriage degenerates and gamos, I mean language degenerates. Yeah, marriage too. Language degenerates and gamos came to be used of all of those things. The act of
1: marrying, the act of sexual intercourse, and the marriage feast itself. The word gamos, referred to a union in sexual intercourse, is documented by Liddell and Scott,
0: but it's further realized with the existence of certain compound words. There's a verb, gamoclopio, and it has a corresponding adjective, gamoclopis. The etymology of gamoclopis is from the, the, the first part of the word is from the word gamos, meaning marriage, and the verb klepto, which means to steal. Gamoclopus describes a man who steals marriage. He seduces women and, and, and engages in illicit sexual intercourse with them. That's what gamoclopus came to describe. The Greeks used another phrase. Hyros. Hieros is a word which means priest. Hyros gamus. A hieros gamus was a phrase which described a marriage ritual presided over by a pagan priest. If you want to know where church marriages originated,
1: they're not found in the Hebrew Old Testament. except in veiled references to bow worship. Even among the pagan Greeks, there was what
0: we may consider proper marriage, including contracts and other accoutrements, and there was improper marriage, or what we call casual sex today. To the ancient Greeks, either sort was described with the word gamos, And that's documented by Liddell and Scott. It is important to understand these words so that we are not misled by particular translations or by anyone who, having some agenda, like to uphold the church structure, and and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people that want to bend these words into pretzels so that they uphold the
1: Catholic Church version of marriage. and then insist that these words be understood in any part, some particular
0: manner in some given Bible verse. A virgin is just that. A virgin isn't a young woman. A virgin is a woman of any age. In Greek, a parthenos is a woman of any age who has never had a sexual relationship. Athena, one of the gods in the Greek pantheon, Athena was the virgin goddess. Now, she was almost as old as time in the Greek mind, yet she was still a parthenos, a virgin. That's the way the Greeks portrayed the idol, because she was really an idol. Now. When Athens was rebuilt following its raising by the Persians, under the great leader Pericles, there was a structure built which was called the Parthenon in honor of Athena, the the, the idol from which Athens got its name. And the Parthenon was a temple dedicated to Athena, Parthenon, coming
1: from that same word, Parthenos, which means virgin. Everywhere, everywhere in Scripture, the words wife
0: and woman are interchangeable. The words husband and man are interchangeable. We only say, husband in English because of the context in which the word is used. There are no special meanings beyond that. Among the Greeks, a wife was a woman who belonged to a man that she had a sexual relationship with, and a husband was the man to whom a wife belongs. With some important, with some, I'm sorry, with some more intricate connotations for slaves, which we shall omit here, because with slavery and marriage, ownership or possession what were complicated. That is how the words were used in the biblical world. There are certain other words which appear in the verses just before where we left off in our last presentation of the earlier part of this chapter, which merit even further discussion. Therefore, we shall repeat a few verses that we have already discussed and discuss them in a slightly different manner, and commence with
1: verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter seven Now, today who are married, to they who are married, I give order,
0: not I, but the prince, meaning that Paul had law from the Old Testament to support this for a wife not to be separated from a husband. But if perhaps then she does separate, she must remain unmarried or to the husband be reconciled and a husband not to put away a wife. The word for separate in verses 10 and 11 here Where the King James Version has depart from and depart, and that is fine, the word is corizo, Strong's number 5563. Corizo doesn't have any legal or religious connotations at all. It means to be separated, to be divided, or to be apart from something. In later Greek, which the New Testament Greek is actually later Greek, it was
1: used in the passive voice to mean to depart from something. The same word appears in Acts
0: chapter 1, verse 4, where the apostles were told not to depart from Jerusalem, not to separate themselves from Jerusalem. It was used in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, where Paul departed from Corinth, where Paul separated himself from the city by leaving. We have already noted that separation of a wife and a husband is a state of unmarriage, as Paul fully infers here, where... If a woman separates from a husband, she must, as Paul says, remain unmarried. Then departing from a husband is being unmarried, according to Paul. The word for unmarried here is a noun, agamos. It's the word gamus or marriage, prefixed with a negative particle. Of course, according to Yahshua Christ, fornication is grounds, is valid grounds for departure from a spouse. Nevertheless, Paul considered a wife's
1: separating herself from her husband to be unmarriage. Verse 12. Now furthermore, I not the prince, say.
0: In other words, Paul has no commandment in the gospel or in Old Testament scripture to support this, so he is saying it. It's his advice, and he admits that. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she consents to dwell with him, he must not put her away. And any woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to dwell with her, she must not divorce that husband. We've already discussed Paul's assertion that mere unbelief or religious disagreement by itself is not valid grounds for separating oneself from a husband or wife. Describing that separation, here in verses 12 and 13, the same word is repeated twice by Paul. But in our translation, it is expressed in two different ways. That word is the verb, affiemi. It's Strong's number 863. And here, in the context of marriage and separation from marriage, it is put away in verse 12. And divorce in verse thirteen of the Christian New Testament. This was done purposely. It was done by design,
1: as
0: a way of asserting that in the Bible, a putting away and a divorce. The act of a divorce, not the bill of divorcement. Let's not confuse that. The act of a divorce in verse 13 are one and the same thing. Putting away in the Bible is the act of divorce. We discussed the same word, afiemi, in part six of this presentation of this very epistle two weeks ago. In the context of sin, where in that context, afiemi was very often translated in the King James Version as forgive, afiemi is a letting go of of your accountability for sin by God. When he forgives your sin, he is letting go your accountability. According to Liddell and Scott, apiemi primarily means to send forth, to discharge, to let loose, to let fall, to give up, to send away, to let go, to loose, to set free, to dissolve, to disband, to break up, and of marriage as it was used according to Liddell and Scott, from the time of Herodotus, in reference to marriage, it means, quote-unquote, to put away, comma, divorce, because they are synonyms. To put away a wife is to divorce her. And we'll talk about the Christian welton in regards to that, Momentarily, It is fully evident when honest word studies are conducted that the act of putting away a spouse and the act of divorce are one and the same thing in the Bible. Whether the husband issues a bill of divorcement or not is immaterial since the paper only documents the factual reality. But the paper does not replace the factual reality. The paper is not a substitution for the factual reality. To satisfy the law and to protect the former wife, which is the spirit of that law, then the paper should indeed be issued by the husband. Just as modern society has done for marriage, modern society has also adopted its own procedures for what it calls divorce. Those procedures are based upon public policy, which means that the government asserts control over the lives of man. They are not based upon the laws of God. Sadly, Many Christians accept the government definitions of words according to its own public policy, and then they seek to apply those definitions to the use of such words in Scripture. This is precisely the opposite of what men should be doing. Christians should instead see how words are used in Scripture and then they should apply that use to the factual realities of their daily lives. We do not bring God into line with public policy. Rather, we should seek to bring our lives into line with God. When a woman enters a man's home and agrees to abide with him, upon initiating a conjugal relationship, they're married, providing they are not committing adultery. And that is the factual reality reflected in the scriptures. When a man puts a wife out of her home, or when a wife leaves the home, that is is unmarriage that is divorce although the scripture limits the legitimate reasons for divorce to fornication under any circumstances legitimate or not it is still divorce it is still a putting away a separating this is what the scripture informs us However, the public policy of the government under which we live differs from the word of God. If the Christian insists upon keeping the public policy, then the government is
1: actually his God and not Christ. Paul had advised that one should
0: not divorce a husband or wife simply because they did not accept the faith in Christ. Then he explain in verse 14 that the unbelieving husband has been sanctified in the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified in the brother. Otherwise, then your children are unclean while now they are holy. Well, if your husband's out in pagan temples screwing around, your children may very well be unclean. If your wife is out in pagan temples screwing around, your children are almost certainly going to be unclean. Reading this passage last week, we asserted that the pagan spouse who agreed to live in marriage with a Christian would necessarily have to be removed from those pagan practices which a Christian must not tolerate. Therefore, in practice, although not in profession, the pagan being removed from the sins of society would be sanctified. This is the same sanctification obtained in a different manner that Paul speaks of in regard to Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he gave a list of certain sins as examples. And then he said, as the King James Version has it, and such were some of you, homosexuals, fornicators, adulterers, murderers, thieves, whatever. He didn't say murderers, but he may as well have. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the
1: name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. The Christian profession alone does not
0: sanctify a man, but the keeping of the commandments of Christ sanctifies a man. Therefore, if a pagan spouse nevertheless consents to respect the profession of the Christian, then the pagan spouse is sanctified in practice by departing from the sins of the society. Just like the states of marriage and divorce, in reference to sin and repentance, it is the factual reality of a situation that matters before God. The profession doesn't matter. Yahweh said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Yeah, they profess to be Israelites. They profess the name of Yahweh. (laughs) But they went off to the pagan bow temples and played whore.
1: You don't have to profess God. But if you
0: act like a Christian, you're doing better than many Christians. Paul then says, in verse 15, But if the unbelieving separates himself, let him separate himself, the brother or the sister, is not reduced to bondage in these instances. But in peace, Yahweh has called us. Many pagans are not going to walk the Christian walk because they're married to a Christian. So, if they can't agree to walk the walk and to stay away from the whoredom Then they've got to go. Therefore, we see that a Christian is not bound to a marriage with the pagan spouse if indeed the spouse cannot abide by the Christian. Not being reduced to bondage means that the Christian is free from the marriage obligation when the unbelieving spouse departs. And with this, we will commence with verse 16. Indeed, how do you know, wife, if you shall keep the husband? Or how do you know, husband, if you shall keep the wife? Only as the prince has distributed to each, as each Yahweh has called, thus he must walk, and thusly in all of the assemblies I prescribe. The Codex. Clara Montanus has, I teach. Here Paul is basically asserting that men do not make marriages, but God does. But Paul is not talking about keeping a wife or a husband in the kingdom of heaven, in the resurrection. As Christ is recorded to have said in Mark chapter 12, For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Ostensibly, once the children of Israel attain the kingdom of God, the whole family is united with one another. Rather, here, Paul means to say that one does not know whether he or she will maintain a spouse in this world. Understanding the context in which Paul is writing would lead to an understanding for this cause for alarm. long. The statements which Paul makes here in verses 26 and 28, and we will discuss them when we get to them, reveal that Paul is writing in reference to the persecutions of Christians which were ongoing at this time, as he is writing, when Christians were being martyred and thrown to the lions at the instigation of the Jews. Verse 18, being, circum- being circumcised has anyone been called, one must not be induced. In uncircumcision has anyone been called? One must not be circumcised. I'm going to um, spend probably too much time on this passage where it says one must not be induced. And it might seem minor, but to me no... uh, that no correction of a translation of Scripture can be minor. The King James Version has the first part of verse 18 here to say, Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. And actually, on that one word, uncircumcised, volumes of paper have been wasted Many commentators have been led to believe that Paul's use of the word Epispale, Strong's number 1986, in Strong's it's spelled in the medium voice, Epispale Mahi. Many commentators have been led to believe that Paul's use of Epispale Mahi, which only appears here in the New Testament, and which the King James Version rendered as become uncircumcised is a reference to a practice described in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, where it says in Brenton's Septuagint, and I'll read from verse 13, then certain of the people were so forward herein that they went to the king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who gave them license to do after the ordinances of the heathen and made themselves uncircumcised and forsook the holy covenant and joined themselves to the heathen and were sold to do mischief. This passage is describing events which occurred over 200 years before Paul wrote In the um, Seleucid period, under Antiochus Epiphanes, apparently a great number of Judeans were becoming Hellenized and departing from the Hebrew traditions. The commentators who believe that epispeo or epispeomahi should mean to become uncircumcised, as if such a thing were possible, are so persuaded by a description of this same thing which is referred to in 1 Maccabees,
1: which is offered by Flavius Josephus in Antiquities, Book 12. Speaking of the time of Antiochus, Josephus
0: says, Therefore, they desired his permission to build them a gymnasium at Jerusalem. And when he had given them permission, they also hid the circumcision of their genitals, that even when they were naked, they might appear to be Greeks. Accordingly, they abandoned all the customs that belonged to their own country and imitated the practices of the other nations. The Greek word episteo is defined by Liddell and Scott to mean to draw or drag after one, to bring on, cause, to pull to, to attract, to gain, to win. In the medium voice, as it appears here in 1 Corinthians 7.18, to draw on, to allure, persuade, induce. That is the literal meaning of the word. But Liddell and Scott go on to add, in part two of their definition for the word, referring to the medium voice, to become uncircumcised. And they cite the New Testament, citing only the King James Version New Testament. We must assert here that Liddell and Scott are only following the King James Version and other New Testament lexicographers who imagined Paul to be referencing what Josephus had described, but we do not agree with this assessment. The word epispheo appears ten times in the Septuagint. Nine of those times it was used literally to drag. One time. In that same book, 1 Maccabees, chapter 14, verse 1, it is used as to persuade. The Greeks in their gymnasiums customarily exercised in a nude, which is necessary to understand in order to understand the commentator's positions on this work. Where Josephus explained the practice of the Judeans at the gymnasium in Jerusalem who had hid the circumcision of their genitals. In a footnote, the translator, William Wisdom, claimed this very thing was hinted at by St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 7.18, and the lexicographer Joseph Thayer cites this same history of Josephus to show that this word somehow means to become uncircumcised, but Josephus, did not use this word epispeomahi in his description, and Speyer cites the description of the same practice in one Maccabees one fifteen but this word Mahi, is not used in one Maccabees one fifteen. Evidently, Wiston and others have gotten their explanations of how one can hide the circumcision of his genitals from some perverted rabbi who would deform his genitalia. But that's not necessarily what Josephus is describing. This word can mean to draw, and I'm not going to draw too much of a picture here, but they are imagining that Paul would follow or would precede in the same footsteps as the perverted rabbi. And this is a case where I sincerely believe that all of these commentators are wrong. To induce means to succeed in persuading someone to do something. Paul is not telling the people of the circumcision not to become uncircumcised. Rather, those who were circumcised We're keeping a host of biblical laws that the non-Judeans turning to Christ, the pagan Israelites of the dispersion, had long ago abandoned. Paul is only stating that the Judeans need not abandon the manner and customs in which they had been raised. That's all this verse is saying. Being circumcised, has anyone been called? One must not be induced or persuaded. Even if we do not agree with the King James translation of this clause in letter, it's accurate in spirit. One must not become uncircumcised. If it's interpreted to mean one must not drop all of your customs and act like be uncircumcised Paul says in verses 19 and 20 circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but an observation of the commandments of Yahweh each in the calling in which he has been called in this he must abide causes us all a lot less heartache when we, being Israelites of the dispersion, don't compel ourselves to act like Jews or Judeans. Paul evidently believed that because he was born into the circumcision, that he should keep the other ordinances of the law, that Christians were compelled, that Christians, I'm sorry, were not compelled to keep which is the argument among the apostles that is apparent in Acts chapter 15. Therefore, in the records of the book of Acts, we see Paul comply with such things as the appearances in Judea, which were required on certain feast days, and with the cleansing ritual in the temple, which was suggested to him by James, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20. Paul said in another epistle that he, and he used the medium voice in the Christian New Testament, it says that the man getting himself circumcised is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul put into practice that notion where, because he was born into the circumcision, he kept these other commandments of the law, even though he understood that we have grace in Christ and that we really don't have to keep them, keep them, that they don't earn our salvation, that the rituals are done away with. Paul explains all these things, but he went on to keep the customs that he himself was born and raised in. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with the Christian doing that. Nothing at all. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but an observation of the commandments of Yahweh. Verse 21. A bondman, you have been called. It must not be a concern to you. But then, if you had the ability to become free, Rather, you use it. The word for bondman here, which is servant in the King James Version, is the Greek word doulos. And properly, a doulos, Strong's number 1401, properly, a doulos is an involuntary servant or a slave. And originally, The word referred to one who was born as a bondman or a slave. The word diaconus would more properly refer to a voluntary or even a paid servant. There's another word which does not appear in the New Testament, andropodon. Andropodon properly referred to a man who for some reason was made a slave during his own lifetime. Now if he had children with a, slave, with a woman that was a slave, his children would be slaves, and those children would be considered douloi, the plural of doulos. So the child would be a doulos because he was born into slavery. Here we see that the Christian scripture, as Christ himself also did, respects the property rights of individuals, even when it comes to the ownership of men as slaves. But slavery in the Roman world was not as harsh as one may be led to believe. Slaves were expected to fulfill the tasks assigned to them by their masters, yet in their spare time, slaves were allowed to earn money for themselves, and many slaves accumulated great wealth. There are records in Rome of slaves even becoming wealthy and becoming slave owners themselves while they themselves were slaves. Slavery in Rome could indeed be harsh, and especially in certain vocations. But very often, slavery in Rome was closer in its nature to what we would consider to be corporate employment today. You could work for a corporation, then at night, and on weekends, you could work for yourself to improve yourself and get away from the corporation.
1: One biblical example of a slave who had a pretty comfortable life
0: and was able to um, do things for his own interests is in the parable of the unrighteous steward in Luke chapter 12, where that unrighteous steward, was called by Christ a duelist or a slave, somebody who was born a slave. The ability to accumulate wealth gave hardworking slaves the ability to purchase their freedom from their masters if they so desired. It might be that a man didn't want freedom because he had a comfortable life as a slave fulfilling tasks for his master, which, if his master was influential, would also put him in a position to make contacts and do things for himself. Paul is advising slaves here that they should be content with their positions because that's where Yahweh wants them. If they're slaves, that's where they're supposed to be. But if they have the ability to purchase their freedom lawfully, then
1: Paul is advising that they may exercise it. Ostensibly, 150
0: years ago, here in America, over half a million men lost their lives because Christians were not being taught the truth concerning this passage. And the Jews were able to to successfully agitate the population to war. Even more appalling, the slaves they
1: were dying to free could not even qualify as Christians. They're just beasts. Scripture recognizes fully the rights of slaves
0: and slave owners. Verse 22, For he, who is called a bondman or a slave, and the prince is a freedman of the prince. Likewise, he who is called free is a bondman of Christ or of the anointed, who we should serve. You have been purchased for a price. You should not become slaves of men. We don't submit ourselves to men. Christians have liberty in Christ to serve him. However, the children of Israel belong to Yahweh their God, who paid the price to redeem them from the captivity in the world which they sold themselves into. Therefore, they do not have control over their own destinies, and all shall eventually be induced into the obedience of Christ. Having liberty in Christ, Christians should not once again surrender that liberty The desires of men in sin. The Greeks and Romans understood that in any land where there was a king, or in the case of Rome, where there was an emperor, that the king or the emperor was truly the only free man in the state and that, in essence, all other men were slaves, since all other men only had the liberty which the king afforded them. All Romans understood in the time of the Caesars that they were slaves, and the really only free man in the whole empire was the emperor. The scriptural perception. Explained by Paul in Romans chapter 13, is that the children of Israel are in bondage under worldly governments because they rejected Yahweh as their king. Yahshua Christ, being Yahweh God, manifest in the flesh, when Christians submit to him, they know they shall be free from worldly governments once again while they maintain their obedience to God, their freedom is dependent upon their obedience to their God. Understanding this predicament, we can see how Peter fully corroborates the words of Paul here and in Romans 13, where he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme, or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of the evildoers. Romans 13, summarized by Peter. And for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your
1: liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. We're free in Christ. Otherwise, we have no freedom.
0: Verse 24. Each in that which he has been called, brethren, in that he must remain, before Yahweh and the Apostle Peter agreed once again with Paul in 1 Peter two eighteen, where he wrote servants be subject to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle
1: but also to the froward so Peter fully corroborates Paul
0: now concerning virgins verse 25 A commandment of the prince I do not have There is no command in the scripture concerning virgins and compelling men to marry, but I give an opinion as one having received mercy from the prince to be trustworthy. Really then, I suppose that to be such is good, but because of the present violence. That it is well for a man to be so. The King James Version translated the word, the Greek word gnome. It's the word it's one of the Greek words from which we get the English word no K N O W. Gnome, Strong's number
1: eleven oh six, was translated in the King James. Here is as judgment. However, nome does not refer to
0: judgment. The G is really silent. I'm trying to pronounce it so that people could know how it's spelled. Gnome does not really refer to judgment in any legal or judicial sense. And the King James rendering is therefore misleading. The word nome, according to Liddell and Scott, means a means of knowing, a mark, a token, the organ by which one knows. Therefore, it means the mind. And for that reason, it can mean thought, judgment, intelligence, a judgment, an opinion, a proposition, a purpose, a resolve, or an intent. So Paul's not giving a judgment here. He's giving his opinion. The scripture does not compel a man to marry, and therefore a man is free to make his own choice as to whether he should marry. Therefore, Paul admits not having a commandment, and offers his own opinion instead. It is a mark of Paul's humility that he does not make his own commandment. He would not rule over the faith of these people. And by offering an opinion and beginning it with the words, I suppose, Paul is also, albeit indirectly, admitting his own
1: fallibility. He's being humble. There is a phrase here in verse 26 where it says, Because of the present violence,
0: which indicates exactly why Paul would be advising against marriage at this time. I see a lot of people criticize Paul for this chapter and do not pay any
1: attention to the context. Because of the present violence is why
0: Paul would be advising against marriage at this time. Only a few short years later, as Paul wrote in the epistle to the Hebrews, he professed, in Hebrews 13, 4, that marriage is valuable in every way. The Greek word, anagke here, Strong's number 318, is violence. In the King James Version, it is only distress. It's an understatement. Liddell and Scott define anagke as force, constraint, necessity. Actual force, violence, or torture, the word is used in its primary sense, as, and, and it's usually translated as necessity. It's used in that sense by Paul several times throughout his epistles, Romans, here in 1 Corinthians 7.37, 1 Corinthians 9.16, and several other epi- epistles. 2 Corinthians, Philemon, several times in Hebrews. But it also appears in a stronger sense, violence or something similar. It's not always translated as violence in the New Testament, in the Christogenian New Testament, in those contexts. Where the word is found at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul talks about his endurance, in tribulations, in constraints, in difficulties. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, where Paul mentions persecutions and difficulties on behalf of Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 3.7, where he discusses the oppression and anguish of the Apostles on account of the persecutions which the Thessalonian Christians were withstanding at that time. Many commentators very wrongly used Paul's comments here to purport that he was somehow promoting abstinence from marriage, which is an absolute misconception. In 1 Timothy chapters 3, 4, and 5, in Titus chapters 1 and 2, as well as Hebrews chapter 13, Paul promoted marriage. Paul compelled servants of the assembly of God to be married. He compelled ministers and bishops to be married because if they can't
1: raise families, they sure as hell can't take care of the assembly of God. Here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is speaking
0: in the context of the conditions which were present during the persecution of Christians under the emperor Claudius. And he is considering the danger of starting a
1: family under such conditions. With all certainty, This is the reason for his advice here, and also
0: for the sorrow which he expressed in verse 28, which we will get to momentarily. Our assertions concerning this passage here are corroborated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where
1: Paul asks in verse 30, and why do we risk every moment? And he says, daily I am slain. Yeah, your reason to boast,
0: brethren, which I have in Christ Yahshua, our prince. Talking about the persecutions and risk that the apostles were taking in spreading the gospel. Well, here in 1 Corinthians, he's advising them about marriage and Suggesting that perhaps abstinence is a good thing because of the present violence.
1: And Paul says, in verse 27, Have you been bound to a wife? Do not seek
0: to be released. Have you been released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. This is Paul's opinion, because it is not wise to start a family when Christians are being persecuted and executed for their faith. Then he says in verse 28, But if then you should be married, you have not erred, you have not sinned. And perhaps if the virgin should be married, she has not erred or sinned, but such as these will have anxiety
1: in the flesh because of the present violence. And for my part of you, I
0: am merciful. Because of the present violence, the anxiety in the flesh would be caused by the persecution of Christians if one lost one spouse on the account of the faith. That is why Paul asked earlier in the chapter, in verse 16, Indeed, how do you know, wife, if you shall keep the husband? Or how do you know, husband, if you shall keep the wife? Of course, it would not be a sin to risk marriage in any situation, but it would be a grief of mind to lose a spouse or even a child in this manner because of the present violence. The Jews were instigating the Romans to persecute
1: the Christians. As attested by the earlier church writers,
0: Tertullian and Minutius Felix, I, um, I cite often in this context, because they both attested it in the second and third centuries A.D. Now I say this, brethren, the time is shortening. Paul expected the manifestation of Christ to be At any moment. Now I say this, brethren, the time is shortening. Henceforward, it is that even those having wives may be as not having, and those weeping as not weeping, and those rejoicing
1: as not rejoicing, and those trading as not possessing. I'm gonna make a digression here.
0: My critics just, um, well well, they bore me. The words hoi agorizantes" here are those trading. And the word literally means to occupy the marketplace as if buying and selling. Interestingly, it comes from the Greek word market which was for market which was agora, Agora was also a Hebrew word for market. (laughs) This may be an opportune moment to discuss how participles were handled when translating the Christianian New Testament. There's a certain individual whose last name sounds like a popular variety of pasta, And he has severely criticized my interpretation of participles, even to the point of making himself look ridiculous. He asserts such things as that I stumble over participles, which is certainly not true. Yet he cannot point out anything precise, anything particular, as being technically incorrect. He once wrote me a letter insisting that all participles were adjectives which is certainly not true so I ignored him. And then later he revised his position but not his wrongful criticism. In truth, participles are verb forms which have tense and voice like verbs do. But in place of the first, second, or third-person personal endings, they have inflectional declensions, which give them gender, number, and case, like nouns have. So participles are basically hybrid words. They're half verb and half noun. Or half verb and half adjective would probably be more proper. Participles can function as verbs, such as gerunds or infinitives, or they can be used as adjectives or adverbs. Most of the participles that appear in the New Testament manuscripts are verbal participles. Additionally, like other adjectives, a participle can be used with the definite article as a substantive, a substantive is a word or group of words which behave as a noun. Here, the words hoy agorazontes represent a participle form of the verb agorazo accompanied with such accompanied with a definite article hoy, which is the masculine nominative plural form of the article. If this were a book about merchants, where such a term may appear quite frequently, I might translate the phrase as a noun, which it can be a noun, the traders, the traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, being that the phrase, can be a substantive noun. However, here in the New Testament, and where it's used here in Paul, where the term does not necessarily refer to any specific class, but may indeed refer simply to anyone who happens to be making a transaction in the marketplace at any given time, it is better to write, those who are trading rather than the traders, because when we say the traders, we imply in English that we are referring to a specific class. An examination of the grammar of the term, hoy agorizantes, compared to the way it is. Represented in the Christogenian New Testament would reveal that our interpretation is absolutely literal and corresponds appropriately to each facet of the parts of speech of the original Greek phrase. The plural article may be rendered as those, or in this case, those who, in conjunction with the plural verb. And both Liddell and Scott and Joseph Thayer, at their entries for the Greek article, would support that contention. And the plural participle is primarily a verb. Therefore, it is, because it's plural here, and it's a present tense active verb, those who are trading. In this context, it is, are trading, or who are trading. The gerund, the words, the verbs ending in ing. The gerund is an English verb form which can also function as a noun. So it is entirely appropriate here. The objective of the Christogene New Testament was to be a concordant translation meaning that it wanted to represent each Greek word with an appropriate number of English words
1: and to render the parts of speech of each word as closely as possible for me
0: to the Greek parts of speech. Doing that, we also intended to be as readable as possible while maintaining our first objective. We certainly do not claim to have achieved perfection, but we strove for accuracy, and we are willing to correct all of our mistakes where they are actually mistakes. Our critics, if one scratches the surface, especially the pasta guy, expose themselves as having other agendas which are not really related to the methodology of our translation. Their dishonest attempts to discredit our work shall all fail in the long run, even if we correct some of our actual mistakes along the way.
1: When I wrote the uh, translation, Of the Christian New Testament, when I wrote all of the essays at christianity.org, when I
0: write my articles now, I pray that I, I know that I'm going to make mistakes. I pray that I find them first, and then I feel blessed because I can correct them. Surely I won't find them all, but I'm more than happy and willing to listen to people that can honestly sit down and discuss things with me. And I'll be glad to correct my errors. Verse 31. I'm sorry, the King James Version does not always agree with our renderings of the participles. However, here, where it employed the third person rather than the gerund, it does agree with our handling of the participles in this passage even though it uses that third person rather than the gerund, where it says, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not.
1: Verse 31, and those using this society for
0: themselves as not abusing. Indeed, the form
1: of this society passes away but I wish for you to be unconcerned. The reference to those who abuse this world is certainly another
0: reference to the fornicators of this world. They are out of class which Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we see that Paul constantly reminds his readers of those eternal enemies of God who are indeed vessels fitted for destruction and who are never considered as candidates for the gospel of Christ. Those abusing this world for themselves, if Paul could only see them now he would, he would be astonished, I'm sure, at the point to which they have abused this world for themselves. No doubt. Paul should get a load of the Rothschilds or some of those Jews in New York. As the Apostle Peter wrote in the third chapter of his second epistle, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, By the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Peter is talking about the same thing Paul just mentioned using his own terminology. Paul, likewise, in chapter 15 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, wrote, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we
1: shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpets shall sound,
0: and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. But his corruptible must put on incorruption, and his mortal must put on immortality. Now, regardless of whether Peter's reference to a world consumed by fire should be taken literally, the important aspect is that Christians should not be concerned with worldly things. However, caring for heavenly treasure, Christians turn to treasuring one another, and that Edifies the body of Christ.
1: Paul continues. The verse divisions.
0: They're not always in good places. The unmarried cares for the things of the prince. How he shall please the prince. Or the Lord. If you will. But he who marries cares for the things of society. How he shall please the wife. And he is divided. And yes, as I just said, the verse divisions are not always in very good places. The King James Version has translated verse 34 as if these words, and he is divided, even though the Greek word and, for and, is not in a majority text. The King James translated them as if they belong to the clause which follows, rather than the clause which proceeds, which precedes, I'm sorry. The Christianity New Testament follows the chapter and verse divisions of the Nestlé Land, Novum Testamentum Grece, which we are compelled to do if we want to find stuff, but we do not follow the punctuation or the paragraph, or the sentence divisions, we put them where we felt they should have been. So the sentence divisions, there's no punctuation in the original text. We have to follow them. What we do not have to follow them as the editors have them. We can read our own. But the verse divisions, Where the verses are, where the chapter numbers start, it would be silly for us to create our own because nobody would be able to find anything in our
1: translation. When one marries, at least a portion... the attention one should be able
0: to give the Christian community is diverted to the wife, which is only natural. The needs of the spouse are put ahead of the needs of the community. However, there do seem to be some exceptions, such as that of Priscilla and Aquila, where both parties to a marriage put the interests of the Christian community ahead of their own interests and work together to, for, to, to better and to edify the assembly. So they certainly should represent the Christian ideal for married couples. And Paul continues with verse 34. And the unmarried woman and the virgin care for the things of the prince, that she should be holy in both body and spirit, but she being married cares for the things of the society, how she shall please the husband. Now, I say this for your advantage, not that I would cast a net upon you, but in respect to decency and constantly waiting on the prince without solicitude. Solicitude is care or concern for something. Paul had said at the beginning of verse 32, but I wish for you to be unconcerned. The Greek word, a perispastos, Strong's number 735, may have been written without distraction. The carnal aspects of marriage are often a distraction to those who await Christ and who tend to the body of Christ, which all Christians should do. Paul illustrates this, not to accuse or to entrap married Christians, but so they are reminded as to what their priority should be, constantly waiting on the prince without distraction. What is meant by waiting on the prince is elucidated in part in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. From verse 37, then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when we saw thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink, when saw we thee a stranger, when did we see you being a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Caring. Waiting on Christ is caring for his people caring for the assembly of Christ and waiting on them, and you are waiting on Christ. But if one, verse 36, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but if one does consider to be unseemly towards his virgin, perhaps, if perhaps, he is beyond adolescence, and in this way he ought to be, and I know the King James says she there, and we'll get to that in a minute. And in this way, he ought to be that which he wishes he must do. He does not err. They, meaning he and his virgin, must marry. The King James Version and other editions interpret the adjective, which means to be beyond adolescence, as if it applies to the virgin. That's a little difficult because the form of the adjective is clearly masculine and must apply to the male. However, there were long-standing expectations amongst both Hebrews and Greeks concerning the marriageable age of maiden. And certainly, Paul would not set them aside simply because they are left unmentioned. If the male is expected to be of age, the female also. What's good for the goose is the spirit of the law. To be unseemly or as the King James has translated the verb here, to behave uncomely, must be a euphemism for sexual desire since the solution to it is to marry. Note that the man in the example is already attached to the maiden. She's already his. She's already described as being his virgin. And marriage is depicted as the act of consummating a sexual union. If the man already has a virgin, then there is already a commitment. But there is no marriage until the sexual desire is
1: fulfilled.
0: When the sexual desire is fulfilled, then the couple... Are married that's the clear language Paul is using verse 37 but he who has stood firm steadfast in his heart not holding forcibly but who has authority over his own will self-control and he is decided in his heart to keep himself a virgin he does well so the opposite of they must marry is for the man to keep himself a virgin. So marriage is the sexual act between the man and the virgin who is already his. And he has decided in his heart to keep himself a virgin, he does well. And therefore he that is giving himself to a virgin in marriage will do well, but he not giving in marriage, keeping himself a virgin, will do better. Ostensibly, he not giving in marriage will do better because of the present violence, meaning the persecution of Christians which was ongoing at the time that Paul had written this epistle. And he says, a wife is bound and the Masoretic, I'm sorry, the majority text adds by law, a wife is bound for as long a time as her husband may live. But if perhaps her husband should die, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Now Paul spoke about men remaining unmarried and left unburdened by a family because of the ongoing persecutions of Christians. And here he suggests that women do the same. His advice is only so that the men or women are not troubled when persecutions take away their families or take them away from their families, leaving the families behind to fend for themselves. All of this advice of Paul about marriage and his re. re- his um, reluctance to see people be married hinge
1: on that issue because of the present violence. This is advice for those circumstances. Alone in the prince, if perhaps, then she is happier
0: so she should remain according to my opinion, and I think that I also have the spirit of Yahweh. Now, every translation that I have seen leaves the words which literally mean alone in the Lord or alone in the prince at the end of the clause which precedes, where they do not fit the context very well. And many translations then add words which are not there in order to try to make sense of them. If we did not seek to adhere to the artificial verse divisions imposed upon the Greek text, we would have written this clause, if perhaps she is happier alone in the prince because she is free to be married to whom she wishes, if perhaps she is happier alone in the prince, so she should remain. Widows could be of great service to the body of Christ. And we see in the Gospel that many older women who were widows attended to the needs of Christ. They were described as having followed him and served him and, and his carnal needs, meaning food and, and, and probably helping him run errands and, and, and helping him with money, find lodging, what, whatever he needed on a daily basis. And they followed him all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, as it is described in the gospel, attending to his needs. However, the early church evidently had some problems with widows who were really not widows and widows who were too young for the service of widows and were advised to remarry. This is all evident in Paul's advice to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he said, honor widows those who really are widows so evidently some women who for one reason or another no longer had husbands claimed to be widows and really were not honor widows those who really are widows and if any widow has child or grandchild they must first learn piety at home meaning the children and to return compensation to their ancestors. Honor thy father and mother. We do that by being pious to our God. For this is acceptable before Yahweh. Now she, who is really a widow, and being alone, has hope in Yahweh, and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she living lewdly, lying about her widowhood and seducing other men, but she living lewdly is dead. A widow must not be enrolled less than 60 years old, who had been a wife of one husband, being accredited with good works. If she had raised children, as she was hospitable to strangers, as she washed the feet of the saints, as she succored the afflicted, as she complied in every good deed. Paul is basically giving us the model woman here, what she should be like. But younger widows, you must excuse, for when they behave wantonly towards the anointed, they desire to marry with judgment because they have set aside that former assurance. So when a woman who's a widow turns to service the assembly of God and and then, being lewd, runs off and joins herself to some man, she's actually doing herself a disservice. So Paul advised younger widows to remarry.
1: There are other things we may discuss here. That'll be all
0: until next week when we return with 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Tomorrow night, Walking the Walk, part 2 with Brother Ryan. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, always. And good night.
1: And I'm sorry about the squeaky chair.